data is the life force of everything that we do right now. And we don't have a different business model to do things differently. Thanks for joining us on our reboot to Coindesk Live. This episode is our first of the lockdown edition because, you know, we're all living in this global pandemic right now. In these episodes, which are being done from our respective quarantine zones, we'll be chatting with speakers from our consensus distributed virtual conference, which is coming up May 11th through 15th. Tons of great content there. But wait till after this video cast to register because we've got this great guest here today. Um, We've got Alex McDougall. He's the co-founder and chief investment officer at Bicameral Ventures. That's a venture capital fund that raises and deploys capital directly through cryptocurrency. At Consensus, Alex will be leading an interactive session showing attendees exactly what kind of data trail they're leaving when they're surfing the internet, and then who's gobbling that up and selling it to the highest bidder, and how we might take some control back of that data. As such, we're going to focus today's conversation on this growing data collection machine that's going right now and the surveillance tools that it's now spitting out. And these are all sort of under the guise of public health and safety. They sometimes are public health and safety, but we'll sort of talk about the trade-offs between surveillance for public health and safety and then what that could turn into later. I've got my White Claw, so repping for White Claw here. It's a little bit early to be drinking here, but that's all right. Uh, It's right on time to be drinking here, so 4.03 in Toronto time. One of my favorite distilleries on the Isle of Isla, Laphroaig. So let's dive into it. I think we want to make this uh, very casual. This is uh, designed to be a a chat. Um, I think we've got a few topics that we're excited to to talk to you about. And maybe, Bailey, if I can kind of kick off with a little bit of background around uh, uh, what we're planning on covering at the Consensus Distributed. Uh, And then we can sort of dive into the the news around this today because it's such an interesting and timely topic. And and we've been writing about this idea of self-sovereign ID, this idea of digital personas, this idea of owning and and monetizing and controlling your data uh, for two years now. And it's a topic that that triggers a lot of people's interest and and holds people, but we've really seen the importance of it explode over the last month and a half. As our digital personas effectively become the only personas that we have, we can no longer go and meet in a public park and talk about secret stuff. We can no longer do the, you know, the the virtual calls for the first few things and then meet in a boardroom to close deals. We can no longer meet and date people. Like we, all of these things are now being forced online. So effectively, our digital personas are the only way that we have to interact with the world. And so hi- historically, we've kind of had this. Oh well, you know, we we see the top ten percent of the user interface of what our uh, what our digital world looks like based on the the user experience, the websites, the, our phones, how that all looks and fits but we really don't see what's behind the scenes and what's actually being captured and what data profile we're throwing off, what trails we're leaving, who's capturing it, what it all looks like together and what it's being used for. And that's like 80% of our economy now, the stuff that's powered by data. And there's no GUI, there's no graphical user interface for us to understand what we actually do and what we look like. And again, this is just becoming more and more and more important as we go through this and we lose the ability to ever opt out or see the edge of the system. I mean, we're doing this on Zoom today, which we can uh, get into a little bit that's had some uh, some daylight shone on, on some of its policies. It's going to be a fascinating topic and a fascinating conversation, I think. It's so relevant and, and it's really been an interesting time to have it become extremely urgent and, and hyper-relevant in, uh, in, a, in a very short period of time. So let's dive into a couple of specifics, Bailey. Yeah. So just because you mentioned Zoom, I wanted to mention some of the other apps that I've seen people start using a lot more of. So House Party is one of those apps. I downloaded it the other day. I think they had 50 million new users just this month. And then also like TikTok and all that. How do we, I guess, how do we know what kind of user sort of security and privacy those companies employ? Are people even thinking about this, et cetera? So the short answer is we don't know. Um, the, the short answer is no, people aren't thinking about it a lot of the time as well. And I mean, the longer answer, let's talk about Zoom for, for 30 seconds as well. There's sort of two, two aspects to this, and this covers House Party as well. First, there's these sort of malicious breaches or these malicious attacks. House Party got painted um, as, as having weak security because a bunch of people had their Spotify and, and YouTube and, and certain other uh, accounts hacked shortly after downloading House Party. 
was that linked never really proven one way or another, but it got this yeah. reputation as being able to be hacked. Zoom as well with passwordless videos or passwordless meetings, people are coming in, somebody posted a big long account of how you can rootkit somebody's Mac just based on Zoom. And, and these are sort of the, the overtly malicious things. But in my view and, and understanding is that those are by far the minority of what's actually challenging about these platforms. It's really the, the actual underlying business model that, that takes your, your anonymized personal data and effectively turns it into an asset that, uh, that we don't know where it goes. And so the house party privacy protocol is okay, but it says it uses your personal information. It uses your location data. It's all aggregated and anonymized, but we don't know where that goes. And the fact that it's, you know, it, it's a free app is very, very telling. And, and that's essentially you know, how, how this entire economy works right now. There's ways to use uh, House Party privately. You, know, you can turn off notifications. You can enter the party quietly. Uh, there's a way you can do that. Um, you, you can essentially restrict location data. You can restrict this and that. But I think where, where we need to realize is that if everybody does that, House Party doesn't exist. We're in this paradigm where more privacy equals no tools because we don't have a different way to do it. Like data is the life force of everything that we do right now. And we don't have a different business model to do things differently. And that's, uh, I wrote an article for Coindesk recently um, talking about how we desperately need a new data paradigm before we start, um, before we really dive into privacy laws. If we just disconnect our, our data feeds and just disconnect and go private for everything, tour for everything, all of the tools that we're using, we don't have any tools then. We need this new paradigm of this way of collecting our own data, monetizing our own data, sharing our minimum amounts, creating different ways of paying with value and paying with efforts instead of with dollars. And there's a whole bunch of stuff we can talk about with that. But it's really the, the stated business models that are the most worrying for me, not the occasional breaches and, and hacks. It reminds me of uh, the face app craze of July 2019 when everybody could uh, age their own face and, oh, and that right. kind of like 30 million in a week. And then it wasn't even the, the explicit security stuff. It was looking at the user privacy. It was like, you grant us irrevocable permanent licensing to take, publish, use, alter, essentially do everything with your photo all the time. I mean, those are the extreme examples of this, but it, it's sort of the, the more, um, the subtle ones that really are, are where these, these types of apps get you. Following up to that, you're talking about this new paradigm, this new privacy paradigm, or even like security data collection paradigm. Have you seen companies within the crypto space that are sort of moving into that new paradigm? Yeah, definitely. And this is one of my favorite spaces to dig into and, and something that we really, really pay a lot of attention to and spend a lot of time with. I just got pinged by one of my good friends and, and investees uh, who was presenting this morning with Brittany Kaiser on the uh, privacy in times of crisis, Dele, uh, who runs a, a really cool project called MetaMe, which is effectively a simple, straightforward. And, and before I get into the specifics of that, one of my key principles of how we need to do this is this can't be something where you need to be a computer programmer or even need to be tech sophisticated. Because we need to have not 100,000 or a million or 20 million people on it. We need to have a billion people using these paradigms before it actually starts to move the needle. And you can't get a billion people to read something, choose to do something different. Within their existing vehicles, you need to make it an absolute no-brainer. So their lizard brain effectively chooses to go a different direction, where the, the value propositions are viscerally better. So better UX, more tailored, more customized more rewarded, more incentivized, cooler recommendations, like those types of things are what is actually going to drive the needle forward. So um, we were talking about, uh, about uh, our, our project MetaMe. And, and essentially what that is in its, in its simplest form is a single sign-on mechanism whereby you can sign into Google, sign into Facebook, sign into a bunch of these different services and start using all of the data that you already create on all of these other platforms, except bring it back to you actually see it visually, what it looks like, what it's cross-referenced, and then start either you know, selling it as the, the easiest, most straightforward way to do that. But what's even more interesting is, is actually taking packets of data and using those to get the customized services that you're used to with a Google or a Facebook. 
So take a little package of your interest and use that to power a search. But you know where it's from. You know you essentially have a data supply chain that goes into powering that search. And so what, where where those guys are focused a lot now is is and where I think we want to get into is this idea of tackling mobility, tackling contact tracing, and essentially using technology and using these types of platforms to help us fight this disease. So if you have this private repository of data that you're comfortable dumping in your healthcare, dumping in, activating the sensors on your phone to check your temperature live, but you're confident that it's private and you can only share what needs to be shared for specific things, you can kind of hew that line between sort of the China approach of everybody needs to download this app and we're going to be forcing this upon you and the complete opposite approach of, of everything's manual. We've seen um, you know, Google and, and Apple try and sort of do the tech version of that today, but with them being such mediocre data stewards and requiring actual opt-in from users, you're sort of getting the worst of both worlds. If it's not driven by the federal government and forced upon people, then you're probably not going to get the adoption required to actually effectively trace contacts. But if it is private sector and you're ending up with your data going to a, a mediocre steward anyways, then you're not really getting the benefits of the tech-enabled private sector solution either. So right, it's, right. we can hear the, the middle line on those and, and we can talk a little bit more about that. Maybe. Contact tracing is like the buzzword over the last couple of weeks. For anybody that you know has resisted the temptation to be online and read every piece of content coming out about coronavirus, contact tracing is just where if one person gets infected with coronavirus, then with, through Bluetooth or through you know, knowing where those people are, you sort of figure out who else they interacted with, and then you can put certain you know, quarantine rules on those folks as well. This is the visualization of coronavirus in Singapore. So this is essentially based on government tracking. You can click into every specific case and you can see where they're from, what oh, their gender is, their age, where they are, where they link to, who else they link to. And, what does that building say? Uh, that building says the Toguan Dormitory, effectively what hospital they're at. That's kind of where this needs to get to. But the fact that I can click into it and say, hey, there's a 25-year-old guy in that hospital. Over there. I have no need of that information here. Right. There's this big sort of gaping swath in the middle where the amount of information that needs to be known by the person that needs to know it. And as importantly, we need to know when that information gets deleted and forgotten, which our governments are terrible at and our, uh, our tech companies are, are potentially even worse at. And honestly, to get back to, to crypto and blockchain, that's exactly what this tech is designed to do, right? It's designed to set rules about access to digital pieces of value. So if you build this on blockchain and say, hey, I'm willing to share this within these coded rules that will delete at this time, go to this person, will be available within these rules. And that's a perfect use of blockchain. Now, from today to actually rolling that out, there's a bunch of things we need to do, but there's a bunch of amazing projects working on it. And that's time to do it, right? That's really interesting, this idea. I had not thought of that before, but if you if you built this into some sort of smart contract that was like, all right, we will execute, you know, deleting all this information after a certain time. And then the citizens of a country or anyone could sort of make sure that that contract was functioning, you know, the way it's supposed to be functioning. And then we'd have some sort of ability to checks and balance, you know, the government who's maybe running this. Really interesting. Uh, so again, this this conversation was at uh, earlier today with uh, with Brittany and Dele. Um, they they had a poll running of, and, and this has been my thesis for a while that if you can guarantee that the information you share will be used by the right people for the purpose of fighting this disease to save lives, and that it will be deleted and forgotten afterwards. I bet your rate of opt in for that piece of technology and that complete sharing is extremely high. I thought that for a while and they did a poll on this talk this morning that was kind of running on the side. It was 94% of people would be willing to share a significant amount of information with authorities if they knew it would save lives and they were confident in like the framework and infrastructure they were sharing. Contrast that with the amount of people who would be willing to share for commercial 
basis, their data. And that's like 57%, like 60% add the altruistic angle to it. But we need to have those, those, that accountability and that ability to audit and, and create effectively a data supply chain. And then getting back to sort of the broader point of, of, of data sovereignty and data trails, a data supply chain is one of the key aspects of this. Why are we seeing certain things? What pieces of data are going where? What models are using that piece of data? What revenues are generated using the model that's using that piece of data? Like all of that, if we're going to attach value to this data and essentially you know, bring ourselves into the digital world, this idea of a data supply chain is absolutely critical. And again, that's you know that's blockchain, not 101, but like 201. Maybe. Sure. Yeah, just because we're talking about sort of the uptick of these contact tracing applications, I just wanted to sort of throw out some numbers that I found. I think this was a ZDNet article. Less than half of Singapore citizens were comfortable sharing their their positive COVID-19 tests with technology providers. I think it was like 40%. So that's like pretty close to half. But then when you ask them if they wanted to share it with their employer or school, it was around like 55 to 60%. I do think that shows what you were saying, that if people know that this is for a good cause, then they are more willing to share that data. And I think equally, it shows that people are a little bit wary of the technology providers. I mean, we have had huge instances of both abuse and also just seemingly a lack of security protections. So I guess I wanted you to talk a little bit more about this Google Apple initiative for contact tracing, just because it could be really worrisome in many people's yeah. minds. Sorry to keep referencing this conference today. It was just so topical to what we're talking about. But one of the questions that was asked was, is this a necessary evil or just evil? I liked how it was phrased that it was like, there's no option where this is just a good idea. I genuinely think that these companies are not evil monoliths trying to you know, vampire the world or, or anything like that. They're companies that are operating according to a shareholder value maximization thesis where they need to earn more money and to earn more money, they need more data. And then all of their corporate strategy is essentially geared around that. That being said, I have a very hard time believing and, and Apple you know, has, has done a little bit better job in general than, than Google has with the A, effectively giving them a letter of mark that says, hey, now you guys can have all of our health information. That's a area that they've been trying to get into for years and have been held and, and hived off for better or for worse for now. They're trying to, to say and, and put forward the narrative that they're using Bluetooth instead of GPS, so it's less invasive from that perspective, that it won't be linked with the rest of your... Um, they're going to change your, your ID on a biweekly basis. But Google's entire business model essentially is, I am... Google Alex in their system, and they have my mobility from my Google Maps, my emails from my Gmail, my browsing from my Chrome, and this like 360 or maybe 270 degree view of me as a, as a digital person. So if they can add the health side of that, that is incredibly valuable and incredibly attractive to them. So I get what they're saying from an altruistic perspective. And as somebody who cares a ton about distribution vehicles and ways to access uh, people where they are, they are the perfect place, and, and especially teaming up with Apple, to get this rolled out quickly to a large number of people. But just the, the track record that they have and the complete fit of this in their puzzle piece uh, makes me terrified. I mean, I saw, I saw a good tweet that said there was a reaction to, uh, to the headline. And I can't remember who it was. They're like, Google, I will literally go to war with you if you do this. It's a line too far for a lot of people. And and I think the tech solution is there, but it can't be governed by people who are operating in a data extractive paradigm. That's really the the main thing. And and especially when they start talking about putting it into like the operating system of a phone without really even giving people a chance to opt out and then be like, oh, we'll delete it when uh, the crisis is over. We've heard that before. It's very challenging. Because people have a little bit more time on their hands, some people are still working, but generally we're not like, you know, going out and doing things. So we do have time on our hands. Some people got laid off. This is the perfect time to sort of retrofit your systems with, you know, privacy enhancing technology. So for instance, like this is not very hard, but so I've got DuckDuckGo. 
And I've also downloaded Brave um, and I've started sort of playing with those systems to be able to use them more effectively. So I guess, Alex, what are some systems that or some pieces of technology that you would encourage people to download for this specific reason of keeping your data in your own control and being private? Great point. And, and I'll go through demos of some of these uh, when we actually do this in uh, at Consensus in May. DuckDuckGo is fantastic. And but one thing I want to draw that, that DuckDuckGo really made clear for me is it's, it's an awesome program. I love that they focus on privacy. I love that they consistently blast out privacy newsletters and blogs and all of that stuff. But DuckDuckGo is materially a worse search engine than Google. And until we can fix that, and I don't, I don't have the perfect answer for how that's going to happen, we're never going to get a billion people on DuckDuckGo. And that's sort of one of the key things that we're always focusing on is, okay, well, yes, privacy to me is a feature. To the majority of people, it does not matter. With that in mind, um, here, here's a couple of the other, uh, Brave's a, a great example as well. Ghostery is a really interesting app that uh, is an extension uh, for both Chrome and Brave. It's really, really illustrative. And, and I mentioned at the start, of you know, we have almost no visibility into that bottom like 80% of what's actually happening in, in our browsing history. So Ghostery is fantastic at breaking down what trackers are where, what they are. They have a library of what all those things are. But Ghostery itself also is a little bit sketchy on the data side. They've cleaned it up a little bit, but they also have their owned by an advertising company. So it's like, it's almost a sheep and wolf's clothing or a wolf in sheep's clothing. Let's go with that. That's the yeah. best. <laughs> but, you know, to their credit, they do open it up and, and bring, um, bring much more visibility into it. And I give them lots of credit for that. On your iPhone, there's an app called Lockdown. That uh, you know, go through a demo of this on, on the on the consensus thing. But going from blank and just downloading it, and then going to one website, it'll show you every single tracker that is trying to access you. And guaranteed, at minimum, it's sixty plus on the first website you go to, and you will see five names in there, almost one hundred percent guaranteed. Google, Facebook, DoubleClick, which is Google, uh, Chartbeat, which is an independent uh, tr- third party tracker, and uh, Scorecard Research. And those index about 75% of the web all combined together. And they are essentially the, the vehicles that create this, this data profile of you. So uh, Lockdown does, uh, there's, there's a lot of ways to do it on a PC with browsers, but there's limited ways for apps sometimes on a phone. So Lockdown's fantastic for that. Dean might be on this, so hopefully he is, but uh, Dean from Loginhood. Loginhood is uh, a really cool Chrome extension that essentially does... What I think it's a it's a basic version of where I think this next paradigm needs to go. So you turn it on, and then everything that's captured by your browser is rolled up into Loginhood, and then Loginhood essentially has a data management platform, a demand side platform, and goes out and connects with the advertisers who are looking for that type of data and monetizes it on your behalf. So essentially, in parallel with what Google's doing, Loginhood is doing it, except the money's flowing back to you. Is that a cryptocurrency play? Is do you get paid out in Bitcoin or crypto? Not yet. So I think, and some of these things need to be started in again places that people are already. So I think we need to get people comfortable with that, and then say, hey, by the way, getting paid out in PayPal is annoying and expensive. Why don't you take this token instead? And by the way, here's all the other things you can do with it. I think we need to tell that story incrementally because a hundred percent agree with you. Even bringing fiat into it at all just adds massive circuit breakers, massive frictions, especially when you're dealing in relatively small numbers for for personal data, um, can sort of sewer the economics. But we need to tell the story and get people comfortable with the concept first and then make it better and better and better and better. And to Ashton's question there, uh, you are right. It's not available in Canada. You may be able to VPN around that, but I don't endorse those types of solutions at all. We had a question um, regarding DuckDuckGo. Are there privacy-centric versions of these things that are materially as good or better than the non-privacy-centric ones? Brave is a good example, but it is effectively Chrome reskinned. So it's using the the Google uh, backend, and there's still a lot of ways that the data escapes it. I am going to say that there's not right now because, again, we don't have the infrastructure to make those projects as well-funded 
as the, the ones who are monetizing data on the back end. It's not a great state of affairs. There are a ton of startup projects that are working to make that not the situation. And honestly, there's, there's a billion uh, tools that I'm sure are going to flood into the chat and into my Twitter and all of that right after, which I'm incredibly excited about. Um, I desperately want there to be, and I, I really desperately want there to be um, you know, the, these tools that, that make it easy and, and at least as, as easy to do. Midway through 2019, um, I really got militant and, and just like cut off Google entirely, turned off all my location, all my everything. And I honestly, it felt like I was living in like 1996. Even GPS, where it doesn't pick up where you are all the time, is a huge pain in the ass. Like when you're driving and trying to do stuff. There's a couple open source map projects, and, and I know that, that those exist, but it, it's, it's really hard to fight the power and the, the smoothness that is Google right now. But where I think our secret weapon is, is the fact that a year's worth of Google surveillance is potentially less valuable than 15 minutes of survey of a well-designed survey with somebody who's really, really actually interested in being open and honest. I think shared data is way more valuable than extracted data. And so all of the existing data paradigm is based around extraction. If we can actually figure out the right vehicles to get people to really truly open up and say what they like, what they want to buy, when they want to buy it, like the value gap between those things is exponential. And just to be a little bit specific about it, in the way that, that advertising works a lot today is you go to a website and you see an ad. You as a person, no idea why you see that ad. Sometimes it's creepy and weird. Sometimes it's something that you said in another room 20 minutes ago that your Alexa happened to hear and fed into a thing. Like th those are all things that really happen. But all of that data, again, is based on extraction. It's based on trying to observe you while you don't know that you're being observed. For that sense, uh, you know, the, the amount of money that Google makes in advertising is obviously billions and billions of dollars, but the effectiveness of that advertising still isn't that good. There's a lot of misses. There's a lot of fraud. Uh, there's a lot of times where you, you see something that you just bought an hour ago and like, why am I seeing an ad for this? And that's because they're trying to you know, keep you at arm's length and, and essentially observe what your, what your behaviors are without actually interacting directly with you. And so you, you pay 50 cents per, per thousand clicks or something like that, and you have a 1% success ratio. Mm -hmm. If you can bring the consumer actually into that value chain, whereby they're coming in instead of at the you know, cost per click stage, but instead you know, they're coming in and saying, I'm flying to New Jersey on business class, come at me, bro. Then you're like 95% of the way there on that. And that's not worth 50 cents. That's worth 50 bucks or 60 bucks. Right. So when you're thinking about consumer data and what is valuable, it's not just your raw data feeds like that. You know, the, the benchmark is eight bucks a month per person. And, and but that's kind of like that's the bullshit unrefined data feeds that are sort of flowing out from us as we go right now. It's those like targeted leads and that actual buying intent and those types of things that that's where those companies are really making money. And there's no reason that shouldn't be us getting a cut of that, whether it's in a discount for the product or just straight up cash and we pay full price for it, however that works. But those types of technologies that are building the platforms that connect the user with the brand that wants to connect with them, right now it's the Google model where they sit in the middle and say, nobody gets to see what's happening in the middle. There's a whole generation of new transparent platforms that are coming up, like MetaMe, like what we're, what we're starting to build with a, a separate project in India as well, that are just platforms that sit in the middle, build the technology and take a cut of the revenue that flows through. And that's a way better paradigm than, than what we have right now. This is just sort of rhetorical, I think, but another question. Great point about being observed. What's the downside to these platforms if they told you why you were seeing a certain ad? This is actually really interesting. I would be fascinated to know why I was seeing a certain ad. Do you know if there's a platform that will sort of give you that transparency? Google does to a certain extent. Um, they'll show you what they think you want to see if you click through like 11 nested um, screens to get to it. Um, they're like, you're interested in this and you're interested in this and you're interested. Okay. In you cannot click deeper into those to say like, hey, you browse to this thing to go to that. You can't do that. Um, there are a few other platforms and um, probably not going to get it right. I think, I don't know, I think it's Twitter. There's one other that has a little link on the bottom of, of the ad that says, why am I seeing this? 
it doesn't give you great detail. Again, it's sort of that high level surface. And some of it honestly is like, you're seeing this because we collect your data to personalize for you. It's like, great. Not what I want to know. Yeah, obviously. Um, Got that. Yeah. It's back to that data supply chain. And, And I think the business model of effectively everybody right now um, is based on the assumption that consumers will opt out and reject platforms if they show up and open their inner workings, which I think is one of the core fundamental reasons why this surveillance complex has uh, evolved the way it is. And uh, mm-hmm. Shoshana Zuboff's uh, fantastic book, Surveillance Capitalism, talks about that. This is effectively a decision that Google, who really created the industry, made in, in 2008, 2009, that said, we want to keep the user at arm's length. Obviously, they would never say that. They would never say that personally. Um, but that, that's effectively the, the result of their business strategy for, for years and years and years after that. And that's really become how everybody else thinks about it, is the massively complicated uh, terms of service that are complicated by design because they don't want people to understand it. I think that we need to have a leap of faith in people to be okay with how this actually works. And it's going to be messy to a certain extent. I think we can hide some of the messiness, but deliver the benefits instead. But I think we need to have some faith in people that they're they're going to see and say, hey, I'm now getting 10 bucks. I now understand how the sausage is made but I'm getting money out of it and I'm getting a better recommendation. I think we need to rely on people's greed and uh, the lizard brain for, for lack of a better word to just go with the things that are, again, are viscerally better for them. Yeah. We had a question. Has anyone ever clicked on a Google ad before? I will say, I will answer this question. I used to not at all. And I don't know if it's because now I'm more aware that this is happening, but I'm more aware of ads now just because of the industry I work in. They're getting better for sure. Even like five years ago, they were pretty terrible. But now it's like if I leave a shopping cart, you know, dwindling or just sitting there, then I'll get advertisements for that. Like, just want you to know that's still there and you can buy this, which makes sense. Obviously, that's why I'm getting the ad. But when they repeatedly shove it in your face, I'm all, you're right. Maybe I do need that. (laughs) That would make my life better right now. There was just a question about microtransactions as well. Where do microtransactions fit in the space? Also regarding Brave as well. I have not used the Brave Rewards yet, so I'm not sure exactly how that works. Maybe you have more insight into that. My analyst, Monty, who I'm sure is uh, listening in on this, is a monster Brave microtransaction user. When I think about, okay, well, Google tried it and several people tried it in the early days of like, hey, would you pay a dollar for this service? And that was a monetization vehicle. And so you didn't need to take data and sell it on the back end. Oftentimes it's the friction. It's not the dollar. It's the friction and annoyance of like connecting a credit card and this and that and all that that actually drives like, oh, well, there's a free version and something happens. I don't know. It drives the the reason to do this. I think it's it's exactly the, the brave model of doing things that are valuable for a platform, earning you know, rewards or tokens that are within that platform. And then using that, um, using that currency to buy your privacy effectively. That's sort of the, the loop that I, I envision of paying for a privacy with value. So you end up with this self-contained circular platform that, that doesn't necessarily need, you know, it, it obviously needs some currency and some capital to close through it. But you're, the, the trade of the platform isn't all of your data for a free platform on the back end. Facebook is a great example. I mean, I, I wrote an article about when Facebook first started talking about their uh, crypto coin, what it actually should look like or what it could look like. Not, you know, this, this AML data vampiring scheme that they have now. <laughs> the things that make Facebook as a platform valuable are likes, shares, content, user-generated content, and attention. And they need to have all of those things happening for them to have valuable data to do the true reason of their platform, which is sell all that shit to advertisers on the back end. But you know, if they have people who are incentivized to do all of these things and actually add value to the platform and are earning Facebook coins or whatever you want to call them in return, then you know, those are the, the people who add the most value. Those should be the people who are potentially able to opt out or to pay for having privacy or to pay for uh, shutting off these data feeds. 
ideally Facebook turns itself into, and this will never happen, a connection mechanism, like what I was talking about before. Of, there's a ton of advertisers who want to meet a ton of people. You are the connective infrastructure. Take your cut out of all of those, but just make it, make it a marketplace. Don't make it, right. you're taking 90% from both sides. I obviously can't prove this and they're making tons of money today doing it, but I suspect that the market for that is, is multiples of what it is today with this extractive data paradigm. So that's sort of my thesis, and that's the tech that we're investing in to build the next version of that. One question that I usually have is, even if we got a solution that allowed me to control my data, that allowed me to share it only with people who I wanted to share it with, is the amount of data that I've already sort of lost, that has already been siphoned off of me, would it even make a difference? I mean, long-term it would, but for me personally knowing that, you know, there's been like however many years of data extracted from me. Wonderful point. Um, and I think that's, that's sort of step number one is there's so much data about you already in the stores of these various platforms, mm-hmm. but it's all available to you. So you can go into Google, you can go into Facebook and click through a bajillion screens and see all of that stuff. You can download the CSVs that has all of your actual like, formatted data in it. It means nothing to you as an individual. And it blows my mind that there's not even actually a black market for like, here's my Excel version of my Google profile. But um, we can build tools. And this is what, what MetaMe is doing is, is one of their, their initial projects is essentially saying, hey, log into my platform with your Google ID. I, as the platform, will go in, grab all of your Google data and essentially use it to seed this self-sovereign ID of yours. And then go into Facebook and take that and we're going to add it to your Google data and then go into LinkedIn and take that and we're going to add it to all that data and then go into your Uber and take that and we're going to add your mobility data to it. And essentially, it's this platform that you know, lives at the edge, lives with you, is yours to control, that has this 360 degree view that is seeded by all of the existing data that exists on all of the platforms about you. So to exactly your point, we've lost so much. There's so much out there on us already. We can't change that. And these are still the vehicles that we're going to use on a daily basis. But we can start at least parallel tracking our own stuff with it. And I think on, you know, on day two, I can create a better profile of myself than Google does by adding, I don't use Facebook, but by adding LinkedIn to it, by adding my Google Health to it, by adding you know, all of these various other pieces to it. And then when we get back into the Corona side, if we're really confident in this, by adding my temperature reading from my phone, by adding my mobility profile to it, by adding a, a vaccine that I got that I can swipe in and say to, to the, uh, the subway and say, hey, I'm healthy, I can get on here. There's so many ways that you can go from there. But to your point exactly, if you're starting from zero, then we're so far behind. Yeah. This is kind of a silly question, but I'm currently part of a dystopian fiction reading club uh, right now. So I just, I have to ask this. Um, <laughs> what dystopic novel do you think we're closest to right now? <laughs> so um, there's a couple, I think. All so, of them? And, and they're both super interesting. And we were actually talking about this not too long ago. Um, there's a novel called Snow Crash, which oh. is uh, by Neil Stevenson, which is fantastic that actually was written in 1992. Uh, so before Windows even, or like at the very dawn of Windows, before actual connected internet, that foresees this sort of world of um, the United States is effectively dissolved and everything's become franchised. So it's effectively capitalism on steroids. So there's no universal laws, there's no uh, taxation, there's no habeas corpus, there's no like rights. It's all pure capitalism. But there's this concept of the metaverse, which is this world where you can goggle in and live in this virtual reality side that you're still in the physical world and people move around within it. Um, but that's sort of the, the world that's governed by rules and laws, um, while the regular world is governed by nothing and, and pure dollars and cents. Theoretically, we're not that far away from that in certain sure. We need obviously advances in VR, um, but if we aren't careful, and we don't change the pure hunt for pure capitalism, as we get better and better uh, biometrics, better and better EKG machines, more and more Fitbits, more and more ways to actually govern and, and see not our digital profiles, but our actual physical profiles. 
if we don't fix the data paradigm that essentially encourages extraction of all of this data and encourages manipulation of us to be predictable and to do things that make us more valuable to these platforms, we're essentially heading towards a world where we no longer have, this is sound massively hyperbolic, but we don't really have free will. If we're just consistently manipulated by a series of algorithms that know our biases, know our pulse, know our heart rate, know all of our physical beings, we as individual lizards don't really stand much of a chance. I think we're very close to that in evolution, but we're at a fork right now. We have the opportunity to do it better. I tend to agree and also be really worried about this like hyper-capitalism or what I would call like hyper-consumerism, where that's all that gets pushed to people and that's all that they seem to care about because it's just pushed to them all the time. Having said that, I did get two chips implanted in my hands for various reasons. And so I'm like on the process of also becoming one of those people that can be tracked basically anywhere. So I don't know, give and take on some of these things. I'm not sure your rationale for for the chips and we don't need to get into it, but (laughs) I want to get to a world where I want to tell a vehicle, whether it's MetaMe or whether it's another piece of technology, I want them to know my health. I want them to know my entire browsing history. I want them to know what I want. I want them to know my mobility history. Like I want to pour my feelings and emotions and thoughts into that because it's essentially literally a meta me. It's a virtual version of myself that can take advantage of all the computing power, all the connectivity. It can be my digital avatar that fights off content holes and fights off um, algorithms that are essentially trying to manipulate me. It can be a clean version of my thinking process that when I make a dumb lizard decision, it says, hey, do you really want to do that? Is it not just this thing that you're doing? Are you, you know, if I'm making a hiring decision, is it like, oh, are you hiring this person because they look like you? Like how a ton of our hiring works today? You can eliminate biases. You can operate essentially a clean version of your your wetware and your OS. But you need these, these complete... 360 degree computational vehicles and we need to build the tech that we're comfortable pouring our data into uh, in order to have that happen. I mean, nobody's ever going to give Google that much data to be able to do that. If we do, we're, you know, we're um, yeah. but we need to have these self-sovereign vehicles that we're comfortable pouring all that stuff into in order to essentially create, you know, we think about it as, as almost like the economy of digital integrity where we have this machine speed world but we're capable to operate in it as you know, lizard brain humans. That's a, a, an interesting and, and futuristic world. I, I think about that as the utopic version of the dystopia, but we're definitely at an inflection point right now. Yeah. I would say utopias scare me just as much as dystopias. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's one thing that I struggle with. It's just, you have to find the right balance. Sorry, Kyle Collier, maybe I'm saying that right, hopefully, had a question that he has posted both in the Q&A and the normal chat. I was going to get to it, I promise. Are there ways to spend your rewards or tokens? I think he's talking about MetaMe, correct me if I'm wrong, um, without disclosing all your data. Don't you have to share your data with banks anyways if you sell to fiat and deposit into that account? Sure. So, And that's, that's kind of uh, the... The world we live in today is your rent and your groceries get paid in fiat. So the sphere of what you can actually do with digital tokens is very limited. Unless you have some sort of platform, Kyle, that turns your tokens into gift cards that you can then uh, reward. Uh, and <laughs> Kyle runs a really interesting platform out of Toronto that uh, turns crypto into gift cards. Right. So you guys know each other. Good. Great. No, no, all good. Um, but no, it's, it's, a, it's a super cool and interesting point. Um, and, and I think the way that I think about it is that we're always going to have volatility. We're always going to have frictions and we're always going to have you know, major challenges in, in adoption for crypto. As long as we have that major wall and friction point between crypto and fiat. And I think that wall is getting sort of more and more broken down with whether it's the U.S. saying digital dollar, which I don't think is actually what people necessarily think 100% means, or China experimenting with it, Canada experimenting with it. There's all sorts of people who are starting to experiment with this idea of digital dollars. And you know, it's still the, the KYC angle will, will still be uh, applicable there. The more and more we can create this ecosystem by which you never need to flip out of on-chain or digital-based currencies, the less and less there is that friction that destroys the value of micropayments, 
ensures that we're always going to be stuck within the, you know, the T plus two settlement world of, of what we exist today and the trillions of dollars that sort of are, are set against a, a, the frictions that are built into our existing financial system. So I think a, a lot of the volatility and a lot of the challenges that we have with crypto today are people can earn it, but people can't do what they need to do with it. So you see a lot of, if you are earning in crypto and, and we, the original version of our fund, we paid all of our, uh, our all of our employees with crypto, but you know, you can't pay rent with that. So even if crypto's down, you still need to sell it to fiat to pay rent. And so it's not like an asset where you sell because the fundamentals have changed. There's a lot of this forced selling and forced buying that really adds to the volatility of it. And essentially, until we can have sort of an end-to-end earning crypto, spending crypto to live, then we're going to see this, this weird schisms in, in various places where there's just friction forced into the system by needing to convert to the old world. And uh-huh. so we can't have this fully end-to-end 360-degree circular Excel model style of economy until we've kind of got it all within the same paradigm. And, and honestly, we're, we're years away from that. We used to be at a nucleus, and now we're at a nucleus plus a little covalence around it. Right. I do think that the narrative with crypto, or maybe it's just Bitcoin, maybe it was just Bitcoin's narrative, that sort of shifted. I mean, in 2014, late 2013, 2014, there was a great push to create the circular economy in Bitcoin. So, you know, I had Bitcoin from back in the day, and then I spent that Bitcoin on various frivolous um, (laughs) that now I wish I had the Bitcoin for. But, you know, that narrative has definitely shifted of, well, this is more of a store of value, you know, hold hodling is, is huge. So I don't know that it's hard for me to see that circular economy idea come back into vogue. Now, maybe it will. I totally agree with you, but I, I don't. I don't think it's asset based. I mean, it, it's similar to how in our existing economy we have gold and we have dollars, right? You have different versions or different things that you want to do with both of those things. Even if you can earn in you know, tokens that are spendable within a specific small ecosystem, oh, fair. That type of mini circular economy is cool as well. Or stable coins, or if there actually is a digital dollar. It's more the friction of taking it from something that's on chain where you have complete traceability, you know everything that's happened with it, with various privacy parts that that are built in but transparent, and then taking it, just wrenching it off of that into our like archaic fiat world where everything is is fake and we just back end it with a ton of manpower and dollars. Those I think are where the breaks are. Like I think we can have theoretically a entirely on chain world that has the hodlers that have the not desire to spend those, but hold it as a store of value and the reserve currency. And then the tokens that maybe they don't go up in value, but they are earned at a certain rate and spent on things at a certain rate, all within that circular economy of earn and spend, earn and spend, earn and spend. And everybody's able to exist within that economy. I mean, it's it's a different system than what we have today, but operating those two in parallel is where the frictions are. And obviously the crypto world is, is tiny compared to the other world. Sure. We had one other question. We're pushing up on time, but that's all right. So we hear a lot about ZK snarks and optimistic rollouts being so sort of ZK snarks being the panacea of privacy and data sharing. In your position at Bicameral Ventures, I'm sure you've heard a lot of pitches. Do you know how close we are to a lot of that stuff working? Yes, and we're close to very basic versions of it. Um, I think that there, you know, the the basic idea of the proof of a calculation um, is relatively well established. I think where we we need to get to on it is proof of something being true. So proof of the fact that you know we, we use this example all the time. You go to a bar and you have your ID and the bouncer by seeing your ID sees everything about it. All they need to know is your uh, your age. And so uh, a minimum share world would be, okay, everything else is blurred out, but they can just see your age. The ZK Snarks world is that they don't see anything. They just see a big check mark that says, yeah, you're good to go. The big check mark world, we're still relatively early in that. The private execution environment, private compute. I think there's people doing incredible work with it. Uh, Oasis, Enigma, both of those guys are, are building some really cool stuff. Um, but I think we're very, very close to, to at scale rolling out the minimum share world, which is even then an exponential leap forward from what we have today, which is the here's everything world. 
I think we're we're working at it in stages and not to plug what we just come up with a couple of days ago, but we're starting to write a Git book about uh, all of this stuff that sort of gets to the, yeah, I won't call it utopia, um, but the version of the world that we want to build 10, 15 years from now and sort of all of the steps that are there along the way uh, called the lizard and the machine. A big part of that is starting today, we need to move to a paradigm that works with today's technologies and can be actually executed. The real long distance future of that, if we're really going to be comfortable pouring our EKGs, pouring our brainwaves, pouring everything into these data vaults, um, we need to have essentially a ZK SNARKs for data. That is um, a purely a non-transferable, completely private execution environment that nobody can look into. And right now, that, that idea is that nobody looks into it, is no people look into it. But we actually need to build it so that no machines can look into it as well, sure. because that's going to be the the effective operating agent of what we're trying to build here as well. I won't say it's nascent, but it's relatively early days, but there are extremely strong contenders to do it and to scale it, but we need to get the UX right. And until we get that, we, we're, we're going to be limited to our little uh, hole in the wall here uh, in crypto what, world. What was the, the book called <laughs> again that you were talking about? Oh, the, the one that we're writing called uh, yeah. The Lizard in the Machine. So, Lizard in the Machine. Are you taking like suggestions on that? Absolutely, we are. Uh, we're going to be posting an outline for it uh, probably next week. The Lizard in the Machine, Maintaining Human Integrity in a machine speed World. Cool. That sounds awesome. Um, okay, we're, we're about out of time. If anybody has questions or wants to pitch you or wants to tell you that your drink of preference sucks, uh, where can they get a hold of you? <laughs> uh, so first, you can respect your uh, whiskey preferences to my partner, Kesson Frank, who acknowledges that Lafroig sucks. And uh, <laughs> he's a uh, big space-side guy. And so alex at bicameralventures.com is my email. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at alexm underscore bicameral or uh, hit me up on LinkedIn as well. Excellent. Thank you so much for being on the show. I wanted to thank all of the attendees. We had a little over 30 for some amount of time for listening and engaging here with us, asking great questions. Nobody got on the actual voice, but that's all right. We'll try it next time. We're going to be running the show now twice weekly from here until the Consensus Distributed Virtual Conference. And again, that's May 11th through 15th. The um, registration link is up in the chat. I can post it in there again here in just a minute. Sign up for that. It's going to be awesome. and. Um, Alex's session where he's going to show you hands-on how to use some of this tech that enhances your privacy. That's going to be on Monday, the 11th. So definitely make sure you register for that. It's going to be really cool. And then also make sure you register for the next Coindesk Live. So this virtual video chat that we've got going on, that's going to be on Tuesday, April 21st. And we'll be speaking with Priyanka Desai and Aaron Wright of OpenLaw. And that's the company that launched the LAO a legal DAO, just in case anybody doesn't know, that's Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And that was to fund Ethereum startups. So that should be a really cool conversation as well. But yeah, thanks again. And, um, you know, stay the F inside until all this is over. <laughs>